0: Hey, everyone. Before we get into it today, just want to give a quick shout out to this season's sponsor, Rook. Close to a billion dollars worth of MEV has been taken out of users' pockets. And that's just on Ethereum. And that number is only getting larger, unfortunately. Rook thinks that it's time for a change. And they've built a solution, which is going to automatically redirect that MEV back to where it belongs into your, the user's pocket. So you're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. I'm a huge fan of this team and what they're building. So stay tuned to find out more. All right. This is gonna be a, a great episode Asu. Uh welcome back, by the way, from your from your well deserved break. Uh, looking a little tan there, looking nice. Um we've got uh, today we're gonna to be joined by uh, Quintus Kilborn and Barnaby Mono. I uh, hope I got that, that pronunciation. You got right. It right. Um yeah, nailed it. Um it's the last time I ever attempt a French accent. Could you uh could you give listeners a little bit of a taste of what they can expect on, on this episode?
1: Oh yeah. So first of all, thanks. It's good to be back. It's been three weeks in Italy, it's been great. Um feeling much more relaxed than than before. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to this episode, which will be the the final one of the season, um, except for our kind of own recap episode that, that mm-hmm. we will um, provide at the end. And today we have two amazing guests. Um, we have Barnaby, uh, who's working at RIC. So Rick is the robust incentives group at the Ethereum Foundation. And you can think of that as kind of the like very kind of hands-on research arm uh, that's focused on economic problems and economic development. So they are thinking a lot about um, PBS. Uh, they are thinking about kind of the effect of roll-ups, um, MEV supply chain in general, and in the future, also order flow auction. So you can think of them almost as they are looking at all of the things that are happening and how they affect Ethereum, the economics of Ethereum, and how, if at all, Ethereum should react to these things. And so we are working a lot with Barnabé um, as part of Flashbots and the rest of the RIG team. And so he, I know for a fact he knows like a ton about this and has a very strong opinions, um, backed by facts. So uh, yeah, um, the other person is Quintus Kilborn. So Quintus is one of our senior researchers at Flashbots. And so he's uh, someone who's like one of the leading experts on OFAs. Um, he wrote very similar pieces on OFAs, on exclusive order flow, um, on information sharing and the role of privacy. Um, and he's someone who I learn a lot from personally. Just so when I have a question, I go to Quintus and just ask him to explain something to me. And so uh, I also know these two get along great. And so um, I think it's going to be very cool to have them here in the same episode. And I think we will talk about um, uh, kind of how the MEV supply chain is going to evolve. So. Um this will be a, a much more Ethereum focused episode. So coming out of the coming out of the cosmos, going back into the ether. And um uh, in I mean we we already touched on so many themes, right? In in this in this uh, season, we touched about on OFAs, we touched on privacy, division of labor, uh, we touched on on proposal builder separation with Matt Cutler. and we touched on SWAF with Robert and John. And this would be the episode where we put it all back together. So basically, yep. we, like, we have the floor in front of us and we like take out like the whole MEV engine of Ethereum. We put it on the floor. We dissect every piece individually. And then we talk with these two how they relate to each other. The interfaces between users and searchers, searchers and builders build us and validate us. And um, yeah, and then ultimately, we hope we're going to put it back together and put it back where it belongs.
0: That's all the intro we need. Let's dive right in. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, Haas and I are joined by Barnabé Bonot and Quintus Kilborn. Guys, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mike. This is going to be a really fun one because this is, uh, is going to basically touch on a whole bunch of stuff that we have discussed so far this season. And sort of the North Star for this episode is going to be the changing of the MEV supply chain. Uh, but each of you guys are focused on very cool uh, components of that. And maybe Quintus, we can start with you. I'd love to talk uh, a little bit in depth about something that we've touched on this season, which is order flow auctions. And I know you are super, super steeped in that. And we haven't really talked. we sort of uh, touched on order flow auctions, this thing that's happening at the beginning of the MEV supply chain, but we haven't gone in depth at all. So Maybe if we could just start from a level, you just give an overview of what these order flow auctions are and how they're kind of acting as this new center of grab on that MED supply chain.
2: So I guess when people hear auctions at MED, they sometimes think of the bundle auction where, you know, we have searchers or like traders that get submitting uh, bids to, effectively to the validator, by our block block um, to have their, you know, trades included, their arbitrage included or, or whatever, um, in the, you know, Higher up in the block when it's in some preferential ordering, uh, but when, when people talk about order flow auctions, it's, it's a very different kind of auction. Um, and really, the, the sort of like what defines an order flow auction is that um, usually it's some sort of it's a user trying to either get better execution or to get some sort of rebate for for um, doing some transaction. Um, and the way they get this is through leveraging competition. So a very basic example is um, someone's doing a trade, and the trade like. Um, on uniswap or something it leaves an arbitrage on the table um or maybe they're just they're trying to find a counterparty for the trade take the other side um and through some mechanism or other uh you use competition and usually it's like you know trading firms or searching or, um bidding and then um depending on how the auction is set up and the best that quote unquote ends up being the one that uh executes the the order uh, and i described it kind of vaguely because there's many different ways of doing this but uh,
1: Yeah, that's That's a general idea. Great. And um, so what problem would you say these OFAs are trying to solve in general?
2: A couple of ways of of, uh, explaining it. Uh, But in general, I think blockchain and finance in general in traditional finance as well is very complicated. And it's more complicated than the average user can can deal with. Uh, In part, this is because you you have all of these DEXs, all of these sources of liquidity. Some of these sources of liquidity you don't even know about because they're active, right? It's someone with like tokens in a wallet maybe um uh, but there's also just some sort of like very like low latency information or very technical information that just isn't going to be accessible to like 99.9 percent of people like the state of the or you know the pr- like price on binance a couple of milliseconds ago and these kinds of things uh, and so but most most users um blockchains aren't really in a position to um you know make the most effective trade or do the like you know um Um, the the smartest thing on on blockchain. But sometimes it's also the case that, um, you know, thinking very abstractly about what people do on blockchains, it might be the case that someone is just, they're doing something that happens to be valuable to someone else. You know, it's an Oracle update and it's changing the state of the blockchain and and, um, uh, that represents value to some liquidator liquidator or something like that. Um, And so the problem with solving, I think, is that it's in part um, making these, Trades more efficient, capturing the like the, the money you left on the table if you made a bad trade, um, but maybe also um, capturing like the surplus you create as in like the posting the oracle update It doesn't need to be an oracle update. You can think of a like, yeah, broadly.
1: right? So um, if we imagine some like a user trading on Uniswap V2, then there's obviously things that 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 searchers so can do in order to to make that execution more competitive. For example, by by competing on adding a background to that transaction, but um, do you think that there will also be um, kind of other approaches that we can go about this, um, where the user maybe doesn't specify as much um, how that transaction should be executed? Like, how, how do you think that's going to evolve?
2: Yeah, and that, that exists, right? So, um, so if a user not like if a user is uh, trading against Uniswap v two, they've sort of specified the a like, full computational path. They said, "Okay, listen. This is my transaction. Uh, I want to, to trade against these pools in this way, um, and there's like some variance in the outcome based on stupage. Um, But it's not. There's nothing, uh, you know. There's not much black freedom of movement there. But um, you know, we can have users signing like four three three seven kind of intents, or um, like CalSwap's another example of this, uh, and then uh, you know the auction kind of finds them uh, the best source of liquidity, you know, whatever that may be." In the Charles Swap example, users are being um, sort of matched against each other and then some other, whatever other source of liquidity, the um, solvers in the auction fine, um, but you could also just have like um, an RFQ system, uh, like 0 or 1inch, in which case the user says, hey, like I want to do this kind of trade. Um, and then a bunch of different routes are offered to the user, different quotes. Um, and this will be like, you know, like searches or trading firms or whatever. Um, Finding good routes against passive liquidity, so it doesn't have to be a background kind of thing. But it's you know um, different auctions
1: different trade-offs. Uh, So talking about different auctions with different trade tradeoffs. Um, so what design families for OFAs um, exist in your mind, and how do they trade off against each other?
2: I was I've been asked to like give give a families of OFAs before, and I, I find it very hard to do because I think very small differences uh, make a make. You know, important um, have have important consequences, um, but like very generally, I think you can. Um, one of the interesting ways of, of segmenting things is is saying, okay, well, um, you have these kinds of, of auctions that uh, allocate execution to sort of like an exclusive exclusive party. So, um, for example, um, like I think the sponsor of this of this podcast, Rock, uh, is like you um, hard work, did you? you know, I'm probably oversimplifying, but you yeah, have one order um and um well, if you have many orders but, but then you have some server or whoever who's holding onto the order, at least that's how um it's worked up until recently I and mean, maybe they've changed it. But um if you hold on to one order um and for some time period you accept bids uh and then you know the highest the highest bid is allocated the exclusive right to execute this um uh, this order. Um and that's like one way of doing things, um, and what this requires is requires whoever's bidding uh, at the time in the auction to like be able to value the um, the execution of this order um, relatively well, um, because sometimes there's a delay between you know when they're bidding and when they're executing, um, and this might mean the price moves or that like the cost of executing the block changes, and, and, and that might like you know um, that introduces some risk for the for the um, bidder is bidding in this, au- in this auction. Then you have this other, like, family that's, um, exists right now and the two sort of canonical or the two examples I know of um, are, like, Mev Share, Flashbots, and uh, Blocker, uh, And they do this, sort of, they do this, um, they work with block builders, and they go through this process where they connect, uh, user transactions with backgrounds. They say, listen, like, this user transaction's opening up surplus. Somehow, usually it's because they, um, they're leaving some arbitrage on the table. And say, okay, we'll just connect a bunch of backgrounds, uh, and then at the when the block is being built, we'll agree with the block builder and we say, hey, um, you know, if you're going to include this uh, a bundle from this, this user, uh, in some sense, you have to be including the bundle that pays the user the most. Um, and the benefit of this is that you uh, are able to incorporate more information at uh, block building time. Um, but it is also like a different kind of auction. Um, in the root case, you'll it's easier to match against like active liquidity whereas in the um nerve blocking of share can you see like you're ready like fully, fully specified um um you know computational part like i was explaining with the the v2 example and there's like many other things you can do as well but i think those, that's like one interesting uh division that's coming on recently
1: so to summarize you're saying that basically the, the kind of the biggest um Differentiator between the auctions is whether we have a format where there's two auctions happen, happening sequentially um, or one auction, right? And in the two auction case, first, the auction of the right to execute the transaction to a single searcher or trading firm or whatever, but then they still have to see that the transaction is actually getting included in a block and they have to go through the block builder auction and so on. And in the second case, you have one block builder doing, like, the actual block builder doing... Um, the entire auction and kind of the OFA is folded into um, the block building process, right?
2: It's not exactly that, that clear cut. There's definitely things in the middle, like what if you have a block builder a bidding uh, in the sort of the two auctions case uh, versus like a searcher. Um, but yes, that's like, that's roughly a, that's a, a way I would describe, um, separate them for sure.
1: Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned an interesting concept, the concept of block building time um and i think we want to kind of put a pin in that and um we we'll get to that a bit later uh, when we talk about um some of the other concepts in the mev supply chain so um thanks for that overview um do you think that there are any things beyond trading um that 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 kind of you could apply in OFA to any types of transactions that you could send to an OFA that that would also benefit from it that that kind of go beyond what people Classically associated with OFAs, which is kind of just like you know swap trades.
2: Yeah, Um of course, of course, uh, everything kind of looks like a trade at some point. Like everything's an all, uh, that's the meme, right? But um, but yeah, like a uh, very basic example of uh, an Oracle update, right? Or um, sometimes there will be like a, I mean, this is not this is a bit of a strange example, but I think it's still still useful. Like so, um, do doing NFT uh, listing, right? And uh, sometimes you get the price wrong. And if if you did have to submit via an OFA you'd uh, be able to sort of capture um, some of the value of your accidental bad listing. Um, I don't think that's like the. Hopefully, it's not the primary use case. I think we can maybe figure out the bad listings some other how, but um, some other way. But um, but yeah, I think there's a like anything that represents value to someone else, right? Um, and your blockchain like, during complete or at least the uh, Ethereum and and like smart contract chains, um. Well, effectively for and and so there's a whole lot of different things that can happen um maybe right now like Dex trades, is the most popular thing but who knows when this goes going forward um but yeah i guess everything looks like a trade if it represents that like value value somehow
0: i have a question just about uh maybe barnaby this is where i'm calling you a little bit here as well i know you've talked um you know about kind of determining where the line for the ethereum protocol sort of exists and one question that I have maybe connecting a couple of different interviews from this season especially the the last interview that we get with with Cosmos is the Cosmos approach to MEV is very much we have an application here maybe it's a decentralized exchange like Penumbra there's MEV that's being generated and that's sort of baked into the design of that dex. So I would love you know when you're sort of hearing this um, MEV is kind of simultaneously a, a problem and an opportunity. A problem in the sense that there can be negative outcomes for users but an opportunity in that there is uh, economic surplus that's often created. I would love to get your perspective on who do you think the sort of problem and the, the economic value should accrue to kind of the app layer or Ethereum layer. And, you know, kind of speaking from, I guess, your perspective, but you do work at the Ethereum Foundation, like this, how does Ethereum uh, you know, kind of think about getting involved here?
3: Yeah. So as always, it's very difficult to make blanket statements for how Ethereum considers Something so the idea of the bazaar versus the the cathedral, but I can I can talk about what my my thoughts are on the on the topic. And I did listen to the episode with Harry, um about Cosmos, who was saying that you know the transaction supply chain—that's the whole of Ethereum. Like Ethereum doesn't stop at the at the protocol side, and what you're seeing with Cosmos, for instance, is you have uh, much more activist protocols like that are adding this layer of programmability, of, uh, of of decision-making with respect to, to how the MEV is managed and how it's kind of captured and then uh, redistributed. I would say in Ethereum, the trade-offs are maybe a little different, or at least the constraints are a little different. Uh, first, you don't necessarily have all trusted proposals, so you always want to create designs that are credible, even in the presence of untrusted proposals, and that adds a lot more constrained to to what you can do with the, with a the protocol, and then the because you are not in this uh, let's say app chain perspective, you also need to consider second order effects on on what can happen when you build in something that's maybe more favorable to one category of applications, and then might have ripple effects on on other applications that uh, that could suffer from it. So the I would say the perspective has been to be a bit more conservative in terms of the update and maybe a bit less opinionated about uh, the way that the MEV is managed at protocol level. Uh, But that doesn't mean that choices aren't being made because when you look at PBS, for instance, there is an opinionated uh,
1: choice that is made when we're talking about uh, Enshrine PBS, for instance. So um, staying with this uh, notion of kind of application uh, layer versus protocol layer, I'd have a, a, a question kind of to both of you. I know Quintus, you've thought about this a lot more, but Barnaby, you have like a very keen, like understanding of economics and, and markets. So I'd be very curious to hear your, your thoughts as well. So Tio Leibovitz from like Unisob's former um, head of strategy, he went on a podcast recently and he said, he thinks that um, generalized OFAs will um, not take off in the marketplace because um, all the applications will kind of develop their own um, individual order flow options or their own individual ways of dealing with MEV. And they are not, so for one, they can kind of specialize more, but also they're not interested in sharing any of the economics um, with an outside protocol. So how do you think about this trade-off? What will happen, basically? Will applications all succeed in developing their own MEV solutions or uh, will we see kind of a generalized or if a layer maybe on Ethereum um, take off and kind of what are like the arguments um, for and against these things? Yeah, I think
2: so. There's a, there's a lot to say. Um, I think it um, because it, it kind of depends what you mean by application as well. Like is Uniswap the application or trading the application? Like, um, but um, so the, the first thing to to think about here is that if if it is the case that we separate things and you know, like a very specific auction for every specific use case, uh, you do miss the, like, capturing sort of the complementarity between different opportunities, you know, um, liquidations and and all, and these kinds of things, uh, right now, liquidations and, like, trade trading odds, uh, you know, but backwards liquidations. So you, get what, you get what I mean? Um, but, um, um, I think also you have to think about this from like a centralization decentralization perspective. Like, uh, I think it seems kind of undesirable uh, to have like the only effective way of using Uniswap being like going through some centralized server, and that also like kind like of defeats the point. That I don't know if that's what he was suggesting. Um, so um, it might be the case that like multiple um, auctions that that uh, um, work for a for a specific um, application. Why, like general preference, and I—I I mean, many people with Flashbots have spoken about this, and it's a very interesting idea. I think is to have some sort of like general, um, general layer uh, that acts as like a sort of like a programmable auction and that can facilitate uh, many different kinds of auctions for different kinds of applications. Uh, and the benefit of this is that you're not stuck with you know the one uh, auction. This is like one front end is offering you, and that's the young way of of um, accessing, um, you know. Uniswap or whatever because you're trusting some um some server they set up. But, but rather to have a, a world where um we have many different auctions and they're running in some way that you um you trust um or that it, like you know, it is in some sense centralized um, but also that uh, allows people to like you know pitch different kind of auction formats if you know, this one auction format is working, some experiment. The problem with uh, like running trusted auctions is that it's very hard for someone else to, to launch other auctions. Right now, the um, the biggest auctions have spent like a lot of time uh, garnering trust for people trying to get order flow adoption. fast is a well name. Um, you know, the people involved with Blocker well known, Calsop spent many years and it comes out of Gnosis. Um, so there's a lot of um, like, reputation that goes into this and so it becomes very hard for someone else to go, like, Hey, I actually have a great auction idea. Um, let me, you know, set up an auction because it takes them like a lot of time to gain trust from people and, and it might not even be possible. So if you can provide this with like a, a more general auction layer that can be programmed to be um you know facilitate more specific kinds of auctions, uh, then you um I think you end up doing quite well um, in that you allow people to compete and propose different kinds of mechanisms and then have these work quite well, but still capture the sort of like specific, specificity of different kinds of auction needs because yes it is true that um you know maybe the the kind of auction which is best for the uh, dex trades. It looks a bit different from the which that works well
3: for NFTs or something. Adding to that, um I would say there are fairly strict uh, results on even the computational complexity of of running auctions. And so, if you're trying to do like this generalized matching engine, like you know for sure that this is going to be basically impossible to solve. So the question, like, do you can you put that? add protocol, like, can you, can you make the Ethereum protocol basically organize this auction? Seems to me like it's, it's a tall it's order that, that's going to be um, yeah, running against some some fairly essential or fundamental limits. So then the question is, if you don't do that, what, what do you do? And I think that was kind of a gist of Haskell's question, which is that, you know, will, will we see piecewise auctions of just like separate flows for, for the user transaction to, to go through? Application per application. I think at the beginning, we will see that because it's just it's just easier to do when applications have kind of a, a finger on the on the bottleneck for the user transaction flow. Um, but as Quintus mentioned, there are complementarities between these these applications and if there are complementies, complementarities, uh, there is value. And if there is value, there are people who are going to to innovate on formats and, and figure out how to how to capture that that value. But then I don't think we'll ever get to a point where this converges to a generalized auction that that solves everything and matches everyone uh, at the same time. And so should the protocol then be involved? My perspective is that when, when it does, we are kind of locking in a certain type of allocation mechanism. And perhaps we don't want to do that. Perhaps we want to preserve the optionality of yeah innovation in terms of the auctions or even the market structures might might change over time so so we we want to give ourselves uh, as much room to to be agile and to and to let the market kind of figure out the the best mechanisms for that. Um I would say that everything is
2: already one auction in some sense right There's already you know everything needs to go into the same block and so there's it's all economically interrelated already um, and the question really is like a, how many you know, different is there like, you know, a different route that everyone takes that everyone goes through some like specific auction first and then it all aggregates together later? Um, uh, or like, you know, I guess one sort of like more uh, dystopia, utopia perspective is on this is like, yes, you do have this potential world where you have many different auctions. You have one where like there's like three or four, um, or, I don't know, some small number of like servers running in like US East. One AWS, um, um, you know, executing everyone's trades, and then you have you know a different world with different kinds of auction outcomes, and so it's very up, up in the air, and it's very much like I think this this should be like a uh, a call for like decentralization and, and pushing forward there. So um, that's also I think the more like a uh, important one to make it's very unclear and like worse and better
1: outcomes. Fascinating guys. Um, I I want to kind of close the chapter on OFAs for now, and and uh, move to the next one. So, one thing that we always discuss, and I think one of the original reasons why we're here is is kind of the the problem of vertical integration. originally um I think the fear was that um that mining pools would integrate um with searchers and then there would be one dominant mining pool um that that kind of can crowd out all of the other ones that would lead to centralization right and Men, this has been many years ago and now, uh, of course, um, the IAV supply chain is much more complex than just mining pools and searchers. Um, but the problem of vertical integration remains and arguably it's, it's bigger and kind of more elusive than, than ever before. Right? So we are seeing vertical integration between um, wallets and searchers, um, between searchers and block builders, um, between block builders and relays. And, um, and who knows um, what else is there that, that we're kind of not aware of because these, th- these things are very hard to prove. So um, could you maybe reiterate why vertical integration is such a big problem for the MEV supply chain and how we can address this problem at a high level or kind of how you personally think about addressing this problem at a high level?
3: Um, sure. So the first question is, why is vertical integration such a problem? And I think it really comes to why we are building the systems that that we are building, which is that we want systems that are efficient, but we don't want systems where the efficiency can be, or, or the extra surplus that the system creates can be extracted by, by a single party. And so when you have vertical integration, you basically take two entities that would be in a in a relation of 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 checks and balances, or maybe in intention tension with, with one another, and now you you you're kind of merging them together, and so you might be expanding uh, the action space for that bundled entity to to extract more value through whatever is is going through its uh, its pipeline. So why we why we care about vertical integration is really because we care about having systems that are loosely coupled, and and each part of the system or each component. Is unable to to extract any kind of rent on on what's going um, through through its pipe. And if you have vertical integration, you you also prevent to some extent competitivity because now, uh, if you have one searcher on one side and many builders on the other side, there's at least a bit of competition between the builders to to offer something to the searcher. But if, if the searcher and builder are, are the same, uh, now they they can do strategies that are that are different, and they don't need to be quite as as competitive. And so. Yeah, building systems that that prevent any kind of rent to be be extracted at any point, uh, I think is is what we're here for. And so vertical integration is a a threat to that.
0: I have a a follow-up question for you there, Barnaby. Um, I would love to understand how you think about builders and specifically builders getting larger and more sophisticated. I think, you know, one of the the parts of the, sort of like a design principle that's been extremely successful, at least in Ethereum so far, is kind of this idea of making basically leveling the, the playing field for proposers and making sure that they're adequately compensated for securing the Ethereum network. I think one of the, the trade-offs there, and I'm sure we'll get more into the weeds on proposer-builder separation, um, is that you have kind of these larger and more sophisticated builders. And without going too far into this, we had a whole episode on the modular uh, MEV in the modular world but it seems like that's only going to be kind of exacerbated as we move up the stack to, to roll-ups. So I would love to get your thoughts on, is builder centralization something that you spend a lot of time worrying about? Or what's what's your sort of
3: thoughts there? Yeah, yeah. We, we do worry about builder centralization insofar as we care about the signal that, that PBS is, is giving us. And the signal should be equally the same for for all proposers. And so if you now have builders that are more powerful and that capture like private uh, order flow uh, in a sense that can um, add some noise to that signal or destroy some of the, the value that would be going forward. So if you don't have the same competitivity on, on the builder side, uh, you don't let the value propagate towards the, toward the validators and eventually towards the the protocol who's, who's behind the, the validators. And so builder centralization is a bit worrying in the sense that now again, you have this one actor in the supply chain that's able to to extract undue rent and which maybe is is not um, compatible with this idealized version of a builder, which is more of a simple pass through that uh, that forwards the value towards the the proposals and the the protocol eventually.
0: Quick break from the show here. I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine swapping two stable coins on chain, paying zero dollars in gas and instead getting a rebate of $2,000. This is something that's actually happened on chain. To understand how, I want to introduce and thank this season's sponsor, Rook. Zooming out for a second. The current state of affairs at MEV is billions of dollars so far have been extracted from users' pockets using MEV. Rook is coming in and saying, enough is enough. Blockchain should drive value to their users and the applications they use. It is time to leave the hobbyist era behind us if we want to move forward and we want to get this right. That's why Rook has built a custom blockchain settlement network, and it's one that gives you full control over the entire transaction lifecycle. Today you can connect to an open source Rook node. The Rook protocol will automatically match, bundle, and auction your orders and transactions in seconds with zero gas overhead. Also, any MEV that's discoverable along the way will be returned to you, the user. Created as a collaboration between the industry's top mechanism designers and MEV engineers, Rook was built from the ground up to be scalable, safe, and programmable. You can get your own mempool, choose searchers and builders, and link your mempool with others to discover even more MEV. You can define how the MEV is shared and delivered as well. And we can basically process anything from transactions to meta transactions and more. This is the way that blockchains basically should have been from day one. So if you're a user listening to this, here's what I want you to do. want you to go to your wallets go to your favorite app your node provider and say hey i want you to be working with these guys rook i want the mev that i create to be redistributed back to me if you're a developer and you want to stay ahead of the game the best way to do that is to follow them on twitter they are at rook or even better yet slide into their dms they are lightning responsive they'll get you set up today and if you do slide into those dms as always please tell them that i sent you quintus i'd love to get your kind of tag you in here and get your thoughts on just vertical integration in general and then yeah any thoughts that you might have about builders getting larger and more sophisticated
2: yeah I um I think I sort of caught the crux of it I think vertical integration is in the uh, you know sometimes it makes sense like it's just like you know the consensus layer and execution layer like oh vertical integrated in some sense but uh makes sense the two things that brought together the, the client um but in the like searcher builder case, maybe it's less desirable. Like the like searcher validator case, is less desirable because then you have, um, like centralization vectors. And um, uh, I think one of the interesting things I can say about of, uh, vertical integration about uh, in like block building and searching today is that uh, I think part of what come, part of where it comes from is that there's you know all of these different searches and they don't they aren't able to collaborate well uh, in this in the sense that. Um, you know, we might be going, we might be like both, uh, doing some strategy that touches the same, like can V three pool or something changing that price, but, um, because we don't trust each other, there's no real like mechanism for us to do it. Um, I can't, you know, collaborate with some other soldier and say, um, you know, let, let me know what just, what stage you're going to leave the pools. in, so I can like better calculate my strategy for that or, um, um, you know, things along these lines. And so what builders do is they play this role in the network where they say, okay, we have to aggregate all this information Well, all of these people didn't know how to have, like, form a block together. And I'll be in this like a special position where I have all of the information, I'll put it all together. Um, and the way things are set up at the moment, that's necessary. But what that also means is that um, these builders have like a lot of additional information, um, which is like super useful uh, in, in searching, HFT, and traditional finance as well. Uh, and that's why you see a lot of um, vertical integrations because they have this um, sort of informational edge and it um, really makes sense for them to take it. it. doesn't make sense, but I mean, there's a lot of economic incentive for them to take advantage of it. Um, background bundles, you know, and so their own trades given all this kind of information. Um, yeah, I think if you can sort of see where, you, which thing you can address to help alleviate that.
1: Yeah, so you said searchers can't collaborate well on, on the one hand. And you also said um, builders have all of this extra information, and so these might be the same thing, right? Um, but extra information and kind of um, also like a latency advantage, so they they can act later in the game. Um, in finance terms, they they have what we would call the last look, right? They they can kind of react closer to the actual event that matters. Um, well, how do we? How should we think about like dealing with this um, in general? Like how? searchers and builders they arguably have started to become kind of the same party because there is a big economic benefit for a searcher to be a block builder or for a block builder to start searching although arguably kind of all of the skill is in the searching and not in the block building um and so it's it's kind of we're seeing kind of the integration that way that all of those parties who were originally big searchers they have now become big block builders we haven't really seen it the other way around that there's someone who's like uniquely good at block building and they then branched out into searching. So we, we're not really seeing that. I think that that that's a nice indication of where the actual power resides in the supply chain. But how should we think about kind of breaking these two roles apart?
2: Yeah, I think you can think of it uh, sort of like thinking of the um, the fundamental requirement like, of like, okay, all of these different strategies after like, all these different transactions or whatever have to end up in the final block. Uh, and then there's tension, which you find in in these like, highly sensitive environments where your information is super valuable. Uh, and so, if if I if someone else knows when I'm bidding for an opportunity or what arbitrage I'm doing or whatever it is, um, that means that they can act on that. It, it might not even be that they, on a you know, explicitly um, you know, copy trading me. There's like a much more subtle things they can do, just like sort of um, um, maybe derive what kind of prices. I predict in the future based on my trades or uh, maybe just a bit a little bit higher when they like, share bundles to other people or something like that um, but the point is that if I'm a searcher and I'm sharing my information with with um, with other entities I'm making myself vulnerable uh, and at the same time um you know we need to share information to some degree uh, because somewhere this block needs to be created somehow and of course we could do like this completely private um building thing but but then we lose you know everyone just sends some encrypted uh, blobs of transactions and then we all randomly order them. um, Maybe we spam to get better ordering, I don't know. Um, And then uh, whatever that random ordering is, or like not random, but like informationless ordering is, uh, we go with that. And that's, I think, arguably also undesirable uh, because you lose a lot of economic efficiency. Um, And so now the question is, you know, how can we... um, how does one facilitate collaboration between um, all the different the users, right, and the people like entities acting on behalf of the users, um, and you know people who just want direct access to box space, like searches or whatever, or are just sophisticated users? How do you facilitate this kind of collaboration? Um, and it, sort of in my mind, that's and you know I think I've heard Vivaldi people speak about this before um, is this like, notion of, for example, privacy. Uh, in the sense that you're allowed to, you're able to, you allow users to walk this line between um, sharing information that helps them you know, uh, achieve better ordering in the block, better outcomes, whatever, collaborate with with other searches um, and at the same time, um, preserve their, their their privacy. Even from a user's perspective, like if a user is submitting to, I'm some cast or uh, trader, or I, I don't know, I'm submitting to share, um, I'm... Currently trusting Flashbots is, is uh, sort of doing the right thing um, with my information uh, and only, you know, acting in a certain way. Uh, and the idea of programmable privacy is to say, listen, I'll only expose the information necessary to Flashbots to be able to um, facilitate this kind of auction.
1: Barnabé, do you see any parallels between programmable privacy and kind of the protocols that, that you have been working on? Is there any, anything that, that kind of comes to mind that connects?
3: Not immediately comes to mind, but um, yeah, I would say it's definitely part of the part of the stack, but because again, if you want the the builder to to reveal uh, a, a good signal of, of what the value of their block contains, uh, you essentially want the builder to to be a bundle merger. So you want by the time that the information leaves the the searcher and gets to the builder that this this information is not really actionable anymore apart from just and putting it in order in, in the in the blocks, and so so you really need that programmable privacy part here to first ensure that the builder makes a commitment that they can't touch uh, whatever has been given to them, and uh, and before that that uh, yeah the the users have not been harmed um, during the process of extracting the the bundle. But did you have something in mind when you were asking that question?
1: Well, maybe just the idea of, of, of kind of credible commitments and how they can facilitate collaboration, which, which I found to be kind of a connecting theme in a lot of your work.
3: Yes. Yeah. So this is something that I've been thinking a bit more uh, also in collaboration with uh, Sheen, who's at FlashBots. Uh, first, the idea of commitment, which is, yeah, who's who's making commitments and, and who's kind of recording them. So I've, I've been writing a bit about this. Um, the protocol making commitments is kind of uh, the most powerful commitment that you, that you can get around if you believe in the accountability of the, of the validator set. Um, so that's that's a strong commitment you can make. Uh, but you might also want to be able to have uh, commitments at lower levels of the, of the stack. And so you want builders to commit to not front-running you or to commit to just doing uh, honest bundle merging. Uh, you want order flow auctions to commit to rebating you some of that um, value. So this commitment part is, is useful beyond the protocol. And, and it doesn't necessarily always have the same internal mechanics of, of how these commitments are are recorded. And that's where I would say the, the credible part kind of uh, comes in. So I've discussed a bit in a, in a recent post how I think about uh, credibility and in particular the credibility of of the Ethereum protocol at, at making these commitments and at enforcing uh, the mechanisms that are enshrined uh, in, in the protocol, and the and the protocol makes it credible because essentially we we have the, the weight of the whole community, which is which is delegating the the duty of uh, of enforcing these commitments or enforcing these mechanisms to to a protocol that is executed by by a set of validators that are that are bonded and that are staked and that have. Uh, a lot of money on the line to to kind of uh, enforce these, these these commitments. So that's that's one aspect of credibility. And then lower down the chain, you still have commitments, but but the credibility here is, is a little different. So you you might have commitments that are written on on roll for instance. In that case, uh, there's a trust model which maybe is a little different. You have commitments from the builder side, uh, which Swave is trying to make. Um, so there's many. I think yeah. What what this work has has kind of taught me is that. Uh, I don't necessarily think of mechanism design or, or credibility as like zero to one thing. Like either the mechanism is there or it's not there. It's yeah, To me, it's more complicated than that and it's more uh, multidimensional and, and credibility is a, is a big part of, of why this is the case.
0: By the way, maybe this is a, a good time to transition into talking about PBS. Um, and you've done a lot of thinking about this, I'm um, sure privately, but also uh, publicly as well. So I would love to kind of get your thoughts on the, the current state of PBS, which is sort of facilitated by the, the off-chain MevBoost solution. And then I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, what, what, and if you could even just like sort of explain for listeners, like, what was the decision? Why was this th- decision decided to be enshrined uh, in Ethereum and what does the roadmap look like towards that?
3: Um, yeah. So what's the latest on PBS is, so PBS has essentially been live in its, in its current form since the merge. Uh, and and the and the form I'm talking about is you have validators that are sourcing uh, whole blocks from a, a network of, of builders. Um, I think that's been fairly interesting for us as protocol designers, because now you, you kind of see the shape of the market, like how the market has developed. Uh, so you have, I don't know, it's, it's been interesting, for instance, to observe that there's been more diversity uh, in the relays uh, now than there was at the beginning, more diversity in the builders. Though it seems that there are also pressures uh, towards more centralization still. So seeing that live uh, kind of out of protocol gave us a lot of I would say useful data to to think about the think about the problem. Um, on my side, I've done a bit more work to think about it uh, theoretically. So the question of enshrining pbs is is essentially the question of enshrining an auction in protocol. And so when you enshrine the auction there's a lot of parameters that you that you kind of need to to decide Uh, one of them is do you auction off the the right to make the whole block or do you auction off the right to make a partial block or or even partial blocks uh, plural Uh, how do you think about the enforcement of the bids how do you think about uh, the credibility of the of the auction Uh, once the value is is kind of elicited by the auction how do you How do you manage it? Like, what do you do with it? Do you give it back to the proposer? Do you give it back to the the protocol? So there's a lot of questions that are interesting. Uh, And before thinking about these questions, I had thought quite a bit about EIP 1559. There are very interesting parallels between the the two mechanisms in terms of, um, in both cases, you're trying to elicit from the perspective of a protocol a signal of value that is credible and that actors, uh, essentially validators, uh, count bias and so yeah these questions have been to me quite uh fertile so i've been thinking about them quite a bit since the since the last year and 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 i feel yeah we we've reached a much better uh, understanding of, of what the the auction could look like we, we understand a bit more some of its trade-offs um and so what it looks like in terms of getting it to to ethereum i think is yeah, there there's some really nice work for instance by Mike Neuder and Justin Drake on the on the optimistic relay. And that includes an actual roadmap of, of making the optimistic relay as close as possible to to what would uh, enshrine PBS look like. So yeah. I, I think this is this is probably how how that will go. Um, I had some doubts with respect to enshrining the auction because again there are trade-offs that you need to make and so we're always wondering is the right traders and once it's in protocol you're kind of yeah you might you might be you might be stuck with it uh, but i feel i feel a bit more confident now that we we've seen more data now that we have a real upgrade path to, to putting it there so yeah that's kind of how i see the, the state of things
1: what do you think are the current problems with MetBoost?
3: well there's one problem that has been revealed uh pretty dramatically by uh, the attacks that happened uh, at the at the beginning of April, which is that, um, well, MevBoost didn't deal very well with uh, equivocating proposals. And so even though the system is designed with the idea that, uh, yeah, untrusted proposers can access this market and, and uh, uh, there's this fair exchange that happens between uh, the builder and the proposer, in this specific case, it, it kind of, it, it failed. And it failed for a reason that I think was just not uh imagined back when uh, back when the the system was was designed and so yeah that's obviously it's a it, it's it's a bad thing that, that it happened but it also gave like uh, some useful uh, data in terms of uh, hardening both uh meth boost there's a proposal by Mike and francesco called uh, headlock um and in fact that proposal carries over to to how we think about uh enshrined p b s so p b s in protocol so yeah. That's I would say one problem. The other problem for me has always been the the whole block auction. Um, selling away the entire right to make the block, I think there there are some examples that, that show you that this might be suboptimal in terms of the of the value capture, it might be more centralizing. In fact, Quintus was one of the first, I think, to to discuss this in a in a MedBoost issue and showing that if you have a centralized builder, they could do better even if the uh, a decentralized builder is able to in theory aggregate uh, more value. In that case, the centralized builder would would still win. So, yeah, I still see some unknowns on on that on that question. But um, yeah, again, with the perspective of putting it in protocol and giving ourselves a path to to experimenting a bit more with it uh, before it reaches there, and maybe even after uh, it reaches the protocol, uh, I, I think this is. Um, yeah, these are the two main problems i see
0: i've got a question for you Barnabé. this is this harkens back to a debate uh that we had earlier this season between hasu and matt cutler and it was very centered around relays specifically but maybe we could broaden it a little bit to just talk about off-chain infrastructure in general so something like relays that the plan to enshrine pbs is eventually we're not going to need relays right and they're kind of this centralization vector but on the other hand if Ethereum is going to be very careful about the line for what the protocol does. Probably it's pretty reasonable to assume into the future, we're going to continue to rely on off-chain infrastructure for relatively key functions of Ethereum. So I would love to sort of get your thoughts and maybe we can start with relays, but kind of broaden it out a little bit to infrastructure that we might not even know we need. Do you think it's, how do you kind of weigh the the costs and uh, the kind of risks and benefits of Hey, we don't want to rely too much on something like a relay, so we it shouldn't necessarily be too too profitable. Uh, versus, hey, there are off chain actors that are providing critical infrastructure to Ethereum, and if we want that to function smoothly, we want them to be economically incentivized to keep providing that infrastructure. So, I would love to get your your sort of thoughts on that cost.
3: benefit. First, it's clear from even Vitalik's endgame post that we we are planning to rely on on off chain agents to, to perform what you could call core or critical functions of a, of a protocol. And, and, and this is really coming from the asymmetry between the cost of constructing the block, so finding, for instance, a validity proof if we were to enshrine a, a zk VM at, at protocol level, um, finding the most optimal blocks, uh, which is what PBS does, optimal in terms of the, of the value that they, that they return. Um, so yeah, definitely for sure there is uh kind of this emphasis on on off-chain infrastructure to to perform these things um, but then i would say as you mentioned there is a difference between uh relays and and builders which is that relays are a kind of a crutch that we have at the moment because we we need uh may boost to function and 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 if we don't have a protocol to to enforce uh the auction or, or to be the credible auctioneer then we need someone else in the middle to, to basically broker the agreement between uh the builder and and the proposer and that person is is the relay but but they perform i would say an enough chain role that is temporary in in the perspective that enshrined p b s will 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 happen and so they don't they don't i would say for us have the same um uh, dynamics or, or the same economics as other entities that are there to stay in the in the long run like like builders for instance and so yeah builders have have kind of been this go-to black box. So whenever there's something that uh, requires a bit more computational power than we're willing to, to assume of the proposers, uh, we say, oh, you know, builder can, can do it. And so um, we have proposals now for statelessness where you, you have to provide some kind of state to the block to execute it. And if the proposers are stateless, then the builders are going to be the ones who, who need to make that provision. Uh, as I said before, you might have validity proofs in, in the future. And so it does seem like we we're relying more and more on these uh, off chain actors. And again, this is there are opportunities to to this because yeah we we do it's almost like adding extra uh, computational power to to the network as a whole. Even though that computational power is is bounded in time. So so we want to think carefully about how do we enforce and create the relationships between these off chain infrastructure and the and the protocol itself. Yeah, that's my a long-winded answer, but maybe can be more precise if you if you like.
1: Anabey, are you worried like is the Ethereum Foundation worried about um, creating too much um, pressure on builders and to to do additional tasks that could ultimately raise the barriers energy?
3: I think it's a worry if the control and competitivity of builders, or rather the control over builders and the competitivity of builders? doesn't scale as fast as the as the number of tasks that we that we give them. So if we find that you know, there's a there's a good enough market of, of builders doing doing the blocks that might put us at ease to add more things to the builders. So when I said earlier the, the sensor I said oh there's like all these roles that the builders will, will have to do. Um, but obviously the, the pace of upgrades is 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 not super fast. So we will see over time I would, I would say the, the cracks in, in, the, in the builder market as they, as they appear. And we might take that into account uh, when we start thinking of, oh, well, you know, builders should do like a million different things, uh, etc. And again, we speak of builders as like this um, abstraction, which is more like you, you have this um, nebulous entity that is, that is performing things on your behalf. But it's very clear that builders will not be a central server that is just outputting everything that you that you need them, and that builders themselves will decentralize. Builders themselves will figure out that there are economics that work better in their favor uh, when they are more more decentralized. So, so, yeah, I think we can also lean on that um, when we when we think about uh, the role of builders.
1: PBS is basically like one component of it. Is is us making commitments to block builders to include a particular and that allows kind of this, this, this new layer of commerce to happen between builders and validators. Um, you already now, some time ago, you made a proposal that seeks to generalize this idea of validators making commitments to parties in the supply chain. Uh, it's called Pepsi.
3: Proposal commitments. Yes.
1: Could you briefly go over like, what's the kind of line of thinking behind this proposal uh, and, and also. What kind of new use cases would it enable in the NVP supply chain?
3: Yeah, so this proposal came at a time where, again, I was feeling a little concerned about enshrining something too specific in the protocol, and that might not give us good optionality if the market structure changes or if we figure out that, yeah, that specific auction format is is not actually suited for for what we what we're trying to do. Um, at the same time, I was. Quite interested in a uh, layer and this idea that you can have proposers basically signing up for for making commitments and and making these commitments credible by by putting their stake that they currently have in the Ethereum protocol at stake for other duties that they that they are then signing up to to perform. So I was excited by this because it gave me a sense that oh you know there's like this other layer of innovation you can do that is still close enough to the protocol, but not the protocol itself. So yeah, it gives you the flexibility without giving you the committing to like this uh, this specific mechanism. Um, But at the same time, I was seeing some risk with with Eigenlayer. So the first risk I was seeing is that the protocol might not know that the validators are are committed to Eigenlayer. And if they do bad things on Eigenlayer and the Eigenlayer kind of writes down that a bad thing happened, uh, the protocol might not know. And so what's at stake for the validator? uh with we with, with respect to the ethereum protocol might not actually be the real stake because they, they got slashed of then by by Eigenlayer. And so I was proposing first okay we we need to at least ensure that this principal agent problem between the protocol and the and the validators is uh is resolved by by aligning everyone's view on 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 what is what is happening and and what proposers are, are doing outside of the of the purview of um, of the protocol so that's the first step and then the second step to Pepsi is saying, well, what if instead of them signing up to, to these additional slashing conditions with eigenlayer, we allowed them to programmatically create uh, essentially validity conditions for, for, for their blocks. And so saying, instead of waiting to see the validator did something and then they get slashed, which I called uh, optimistic validity, uh, we, we, we make them... Write down what their, their validity conditions are, and we evaluate the block validity based on whether these conditions are are satisfied or, or not. And this is, let's say, a, a pessimistic uh, view of, uh, of of block validity. And that is it's still a, a theoretical proposal, but it's something that we've been spending a bit more cycles thinking through and and trying to to do a proof of concept uh, of this system. But essentially, what it does. It decouples PBS between two things: one, which is the market structure, which is that there's a legal system that ties proposers to off-chain entities, and the legal system requires that the exchange be made fairly between between the two. And, it, and the second part is the is the allocation mechanism. So, what, how exactly, what is the shape of a contract between between the proposer and the and the and the builder? So, when you do PBS, the way it's discussed today. You you do both at the same time. You both enforce the market structure and you enforce a specific allocation mechanism, which is the, the whole block auction. And so Pepsi was the idea of what if we could only enforce the market structure, but validators were completely free to enter into any commitment that they that they want to enter into. And there might be plenty of reasons why that's a, a bad idea, uh, because there are maybe commitments that we we don't prefer validators to enter into, such as uh, censorship or, or reorging and on demand. Uh, but there are maybe ways that this gives us a bit more freedom to to explore uh, what proposals can do.
1: Amazing. Okay, that, that wraps up our segment on on PBS and I think we're entering kind of the last uh, the last uh, concluding mini chapter here so um, because I, I do want to talk about putting it all back together now that we kind of we laid out this entire AV supply chain in front of us we deconstructed it we talked about um, the interface between users and searchers and block builders with OFAs. We talked about um, vertical integration between, um, searchers and builders and why it happens and that we need division of labor and so on. But then we also talked about kind of, um, the interface between block builders and and validators. So Quintus, um, kind of in, in your words, like if you zoom out five years, how do you think the M E V supply chain is going to look? And um, also maybe as a side note, where do you think kind of um, Swaf will fit into
2: that? Yeah, I feel like it's a it's a meme by now to say Swaf just solves it all. Um, but but um, yeah, I I think um, you know if you want to be really realistic about it, uh, there in a couple of ways that like uh, things could go from there. Um, there's maybe like some worst case route where um, things centralize, but just enough so that like there's no like real reaction from the community and um and so you still have like you know a high degree of centralization but it's like like minimally acceptable and and that's like how we roll things and maybe that's like a couple of centralized OFAs and a couple of like centralized builders that's that's that Uh, and that's really the world we're trying to avoid um and so maybe to like zoom out to a world that Suave's trying to create and then i you know, believe will be the world that exists uh, in in by this time. Uh, is this world where yeah, you still have an interface between um, you know the protocol and this market, uh, and maybe like in' point, maybe it makes sense for it to look a bit more expressive than it uh, does right now, not so just a full block auction. It's something more complicated. The proposal commits to or who knows. Um, um, but you know something like, uh, uh, PBS in the sense that there's a, a market for producing the next block. Uh, and then sort of where SWAT fits in is really everything before that. Um, and I said that, um, you know, we want to facilitate collaboration between, uh, the different users who need to end up with a block. Um, and part of that is, um, users, you know, who want to participate in an OFA, um, you know, trying to, for auction trying to capture, um, or get better execution. These kind of things so you want to uh, provide them the tools to um, share their trades, share their information without being, you know, front ground or screen over. And um, but also give them the power to like really express, hey, like, give me um, the best possible trade at this point in the block or, or, or whatever. Um, and at the same time, for, for searchers searches to um, soft you know, ideally provides them with the ways to protect the information, but also. To give them enough information at block building times or as the blocks is constructed um, so that their like, strategies are um, sufficiently valuable. Um, and maybe, maybe you know, twelve provides other kinds of information at, at, at block building times so that, um, you know, high frequency or low latency kind of races aren't important because, you know, we have there's a Binance price oracle at, at uh, um, block production time. And so people aren't racing to get the most. The most are up to date that like balance prices in their bundles and there's all like a bunch of details with zooming out what does that like ideally look like um, it looks like this sort of like um, set of primitives on the sort of like middle layer that exists between uh, all of the users um, of the protocol be they like sophisticated searches or, or you, know, you know, uh, just being new um, and, and um, you know through this through this layer uh, we've allowed collaboration and, and, and um um and hopefully production of the most valuable block possible um from like a welfare perspective, not just from the validators perspective. Um, but still valuable enough to compete with centralized uh, venues. Um and through this like PBS like auction with the with the produced center blocks of Ethereum. That's like a, a very a very high level view with a couple of specific details.
1: Yeah, Barnaby, I wonder if you have anything uh Anything to add to that? I,
3: I don't have too much to add to, to the view that Quintus kind of presented. I think that's also, I as I hope, the most decentralized possible uh, transaction supply chain. But maybe I, I can add a bit more color on, on what my thoughts have been, which is I've, I've been interested lately about the path dependency of, of how things sort of happen, uh, and, and in particular, our protocol development is 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 somewhat oriented by what's happening in its in its environment. Um, and if I was to try and draw a very rough distinction between Bitcoin and Ethereum, is that I, I see Bitcoin people thinking about Bitcoin as like this: you're, you're discovering the protocol, like you're discovering it as a as a platonic shape, the way you you discover like a new physical law or, or kind of of mathematics. And 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 I would say Ethereum is is somewhat still has this. Uh, pretension of, of of finding natural laws of of its protocol, like where the M V should go, how to how to do things, but but it's still much more responsive to to what's happening on its on its layers. And so, if, for instance, uh, there was much too much uh, centralization or, or too much censorship uh, to, to our taste. I think we would put more accent on on things like inclusion lists to defeat censorship or uh, pre mempool consensus uh, to ensure that transactions have to be seen by, by a large set of actors before they are included. And not necessarily transactions in the clear, but you could, you could see commitment to transaction and, and and then ensure that, okay, blocks have to be made with transactions that everybody has seen. So there are ways to kind of step in and, and maybe backstop uh, some excesses of the, of the market. But these ways, they yeah, they are not like, platonic shapes of protocol they are more like a real politic of okay maybe actually we we see the market like heading off to the wrong direction and and or, or the market is not uh maturing uh fast enough to to defeat the the censorship or centralization pressures and then you kind of have to maybe do something uh about it and so yeah I, I'm, I'm very torn on on what's the, the right approach to that but but it's something that i've been thinking about a bit more and, and i think it's relevant here
1: Fantastic. Thank you guys so much um, for coming on the show today. Um, I think you both provided really great perspectives and um, gave our viewers um, a great overview over how the AV supply chain, like what are the individual components to look at and how those are going to evolve in the future, hopefully, but if not also, what can be done um, to, to save the day. So thank you.
3: It was a pleasure. All right.
1: What a great,
0: uh, great final, final interview for the season. That was that was a ton of fun, and both Quintus and Barnabe, just such deep thinkers. Um, I'd be
1: curious, you know, what uh, what kind of takeaways did you have from the episode? Oh well, first of all, I agree. I think it was a fantastic episode. I, am not hanging out with Quintus and Barnabe, both of them. I think they're both like they have such a, you know, calming attitude, and they are so. They do they are so um good at explaining things right um they always can take a step back and you know put things exactly where they belong in context and and find the right words which i i find really impressive so very often when i have a question i actually reach out to one of them and so it was great to have them on together um yeah and um and talk about the MEB supply chain so i thought that um we covered pretty much everything that i i wanted to cover um so I I was very satisfied.
0: Yeah, me as well. I wanted to get a little bit deeper in the weeds with you on auctions because I I thought that was a super interesting part of the the conversation. But I wanted to to sort of get your thoughts on that a little bit more and go in depth a little bit. And I know you you mentioned to me early in the season, I think with our in our episode with Tarun, that you are a little bit of an, a nerd about auction theory and and kind of like going down that specific rabbit hole. So I would love. Uh, I'd love you to kind of unpack, you kind of listed your own sort of segmentation about different types of auctions that exist. Can you sort of just rehash that and then talk a little bit more about how you think about the different, maybe just expand or, or clarify or just go a little bit deeper
1: on the design, the different design families that Quintus spoke a little bit about at the top of the episode. Right. Yeah. So between the three of us, I, I think I'm like of the two guests and myself, I'm probably the, the least of an expert about <laughs> auctions and Quintus, I think, uh I, I think um this was one of the things that he studied. Um um and so yeah, I think he, he's really smart about that. And most of what I know I only know from talking to people like Shin and and Quintus um in Flashbots. <laughs> so um well, it's a good question. So um I think Quintus uh he, he gave a good overview when he said that um Th- th- there are kind of a few ways to to slice the pie when it comes to, to different order flow auctions. Um, he, what he drew out in particular was whether there's kind of one auction where that all happens kind of inside the block builder and you rely on kind of the computational power of the block builder, but also on uh, what he called kind of block building time, right? Mm. Because the block builder builds the block at the last possible moment and they have all of the information about all of the other bits and so they can really optimize for kind of the optimal the most optimal block right and um and i I think that's one of the main ideas behind so math share um the 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 ofa that that we built but also um behind mev blocker so that's kind of another ofa that's out there right now and that's in contrast to some of to some other ofas that 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 um for example are rfq based Right, or the one um, that Quintus mentioned, uh, which is Rook, the, the, the current sponsor of the show, mm. um, which kind of have this two-step process. First, they auction off um, the right to, to fill a particular transaction, and then that transaction still has to enter the builder auction in order to get it included in a block. So I think that was very illuminating. Um, and um, on the other hand, I think one big trade-off is going to be um, so specialized versus generalized. I think we touched on that briefly. Um, when I, I kind of cited to Lewowitz, um, so that's gonna be a big question like how specialized are the different order flow options gonna be? So you can have an order function that's very kind of specialized, for example on trading um or on or backgrounding Oracle updates or any number of things. But then Quintus was hinting at something um, which is kind of the the complementing um kind of complementing use cases. Um, that you can unlock from having kind of one generalized order flow auction, right? So there might be different uh, different submissions to different types of order flow auctions that don't really seem related that from happening inside the same auction unlock some kind of combinatorial benefits, whether it's batching or whether it's kind of matching things against each other in the sense of like chaos or coincidence of ones, right? Right um and um so one example actually so i i used to be kind of very engaged in the maker community and um so makers liquidations uh, so when 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 maker was liquidating a, a cdp that trade was actually routed to one inch and could be matched with people trading in the other direction right and so um that's a kind of a small a small detail that even something that that's it seems kind of obscure like is like there's a CDP getting liquidated, but as Quintus was saying, everything is a trade at the end of the day, right? And for every trade, you can have a counterparty, um, and um, kind of the, the, the more information you aggregate in one auction, um, the higher the welfare that you can generate um, from the auction, and um, so that that's really important. And then the third thing that I'd kind of draw would draw out is is that of kind of um, the the uh, auction credibility. Yeah. Yeah, so we already had um, Tarun on, so I think he's uh, kind of the foremost expert in crypto on kind of credible auctions. He had this really, I think he has already had two really great papers on this topic. Um, And so the idea of auction credibility means basically, is the um, auctioneer um, going to be honest? Are they going to stick exactly to kind of the rules of the auction that I laid out? both in terms of uh, are they respecting kind of the privacy of bids are they inserting any of their own bids are they censoring any bids from any bidders Uh, are they leaking any information maybe outside the system and um, so really there are all kinds of things that auctioneers can do um, that kind of undermine the integrity of the auction we had already discussed one example with kind of Google inserting bits into their own ad options to drive up the price, and now um, they, they they kind of are facing you know, a big antitrust lawsuit, um, well deserved for that. Um, but all of this stuff happens on a much much smaller scale, right? So, um, for example, in the block building market, there's. Complaints from searchers that particular block builders are censoring their bundles, or that they are looking at their bids uh, and kind of just like one-upping them, um, or that they are stealing the MEV, right? So this is all kind of things that that can happen, and um, a lack of a lack of trust in the MEV supply chain really leads to more vertical integration between it makes collaboration uh, because it makes collaboration between different actors harder, right? Because if I don't trust you, then I'm less likely to send you my order flow, um, for example. I'm less likely to send you my trade. Um, and so um, what this means in particular for OFAs is I think that um, kind of you, you can gain some more like efficiency in some ways by, by running more centralized infrastructure. Um, but you can get more social scalability um, and more credible neutrality by making a more credible auction uh one that 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 kind of has its rules enshrined on chain and that doesn't really have any trust assumptions in the option here itself and um i think these for me these are kind of the three criterias um, how you can kind of slice the o f a pie and then you can fit almost any kind of order flow any kind of trading scheme into that yeah i there's so
0: much to unpack there, and one of the things that I'm sort of kicking myself from from the notes for the pre-call that we didn't get to was this idea of exactly what you were describing on the credibility of the the auctioneer, which was, I think it was Quintus that called it auction extractable value. So sort of a fun play on an MEV, but just obviously there's an enormous benefit if you're the auctioneer, right? In the case of Google inserting your own bids because you're incentivized for, you know, a more, um, you know, you want to make the, the ad yeah. market more. It's, right, exactly. Uh, but I would love to get your thoughts kind of, could you give your own thoughts on Teo's argument for like, uh, kind of where the app versus the protocol uh, ends up sort of uh, succeeding. Because I, I thought it was a really interesting mm-hmm. observation from Quintus that there sort of already is one auction at the end of the day, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah. one block, right? Yes. So everything already is economically tied. And even if you look at sort of the role of uh, I think it's an executor on CalSwap, but mm-hmm. basically it's, you know, these executors kind of have carte blanche to kind of go off and find, you know, go off through the land of Ethereum and find the best execution and deliver a surplus to traders on cow in general. So I would love you to kind of tease apart, like how you see the different incentives playing out, because obviously mm-hmm. these exchanges want to internalize some of the economics that they're creating. But then I also see the benefit to being a completely credible sort of auction system. Yeah. So I would love to just see, get your thoughts on how you see that ultimately playing out.
1: Yeah. So first of all, I think the concept of auction, auctioneer extractable value is super interesting. And mm-hmm. like once you start to look, really, it's everywhere, right? So look at the kind of CFTC lawsuit against Binance. There's at least five examples where kind of Binance was also like extracting auctioneer extractable value on behalf of its users. Whether it's from uh, like selling preferential access kind of to like... Um, to their servers or whether it's kind of trading on their own exchange and so on it's like this stuff exists actually everywhere and i think that's that's one of the major bull cases for why more and more economic activity is actually going to happen on top of public blockchains because they are simply more trustworthy you can design more credible mechanisms on top of them and um So at least kind of that's for one, for us, like internally, one of our North stars is like that all auctions should eventually run on Ethereum, that all auctions should eventually run on Swarth. Um, and so we are really kind of focused on providing kind of a very credible auction that can, can compete with kind of these, uh, these more centralized, these less credible systems. So, um, to your question about specialized versus generalized auctions. Um, I think this is going to be a, a very interesting thing to observe obviously kind of we are betting that there is at least a strong need for a generalized option to exist. Um, That doesn't mean that there will not also be specialized options. Uh, I think so um, because the user and kind of the application come before the block builder and so on in the uh, MEV supply chain, they have, of course, the, the monopoly over their own transactions and they can send their order flow wherever they want. And I think we'll see at least a lot of experimentation. Um, And just economically speaking, um, it's hard to deny that there is some benefit to specialization. But as as Quintus was alluding to, so you do have kind of a lot of benefit also from having complementing transactions inside the same auction. And um, I think there are more transactions than people would generally believe that are in some way complementary, especially um, uh, uh, especially when we stop kind of hard coding the execution paths of transactions. So once we move to kind of a more intent-based transaction format, all of a sudden kind of the the like, the like space of possible coincidences of ones starts to go up by like two, three, four, like orders of magnitude in my opinion. Um, just because like uh, when you just have intents, they're so much easier to match than if you have kind of hard-coded um, execution paths. But I thought that this other argument was even more uh, important, which is uh, if you have one auction and and ultimately it's all about kind of allocating like this kind of uh, you know preferential block space, um, then you can just uh, create ultimately like a, a more valuable block and you can make um, you, you can kind of fill users preferences in a in a better way, right? And so I think any system, uh, any auction system that doesn't happen at the block building like. At what, what Quintus was calling block building time, I think it will have a natural a very natural disadvantage uh over a system um that does. And and so I think those are some of the main reasons why we are betting on um on kind of an auction that happens at, at block building time. And that that really like is an argument in favor of having one generalized auction. Uh, so having all of the information in one place and then kind of auctioning it off or like or merging it into a block all at once so I think that's one of the ideas behind also like the, the like unifying option right which 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 is suave and so um yeah so I think that's that's kind of how we think about that um credibility also of course would be very important so I think it's it's much easier for someone to build um like a new a new blockchain that kind of only serves the purpose of um the like running an order flow auction for another system like another chain and make that decentralized then it is kind of for every exchange to develop their own uh order flow options um i think that the the latter is, is much harder to decentralize and um i think we'll see that in some of the designs um, that are coming out in, in kind of the next uh, couple of months by the way I've, i realize we haven't really defined a coincidence of wants but
0: that's sort of uh like a classic example of this on in the fx world is sort of like a ring trade Where there are maybe you know sort of you can imagine three different participants with different currencies that are maybe it's like you know the yen the renminbi and the dollar and they're all equal kind of once you adjust for conversion rates like the same amount that you're trying to change so you can imagine just like a circular sort of trade right um so that's just the the definition there and i do think the you know we talked about this a little bit with Penumbra, um but the batch option this is super interesting uh you know maybe we didn't get into it so maybe it's not worth it to delve in here but i think that's a super interesting uh new format as well to explore
1: talking about i mean that yeah, cowsob K- is doing like a, a bunch of these things as well right so they they have the best auctions, but they also would they kind of optimize for these coincidence of ones in the sense that they only uh so in unisop the difference is like every option trades against the market maker even if there's o- Bits coming in in the same block that actually trade in opposite directions. Someone wanting to buy, um, Eve, and someone wanting to sell Eve against USDC, right? So in theory, they could be matched against each other. It would be strictly better for the users, but that's not possible in Uniswap. They all trade against the same liquidity pool. Whereas CurveSwap is this layer on top where um, the, the the two parties are matched against each other, and only kind of um, whatever can be filled to through these coincidences of one system routed to um, an exchange like like Uniswap, right? And so I think um, Bad Shocks are also very interesting um, because they eliminate some, not all, but like most forms of front-running and also kind of, um, they, um, there's this very interesting paper, I think we already shouted it out like once or twice from Eric Budish, um, his argument is that batch auctions actually kind of reduce um MEV that's lost to to latency races between um between trading firms. And so um that would be another argument. Like of course, kind of in this in this like exchange between users and market makers, the less the less MEV is leaked kind of to third parties, the better. And so yeah, any any protocol that we think is kind of advantageous here, of course, um deserves a very good look.
0: I wanted to, I want you to transition a little bit and just sort of, if, if users or if, if uh, listeners are, are sort of sick of me hearing, hearing me say this, then I, I apologize, but it's just been super fascinating, I think, to do this more sort of Ethereum perspective season right after Cosmos, because they're just such different perspectives where when you listen to Barnaby and obviously Barnaby doesn't, doesn't speak for all of Ethereum, but I think he's relatively representative of the philosophical bent of the platform which is very much focused on credible neutrality and preserving optionality and not wanting to enshrine a decision whereas in Cosmos maybe the the reason they have a little bit less uh, there's a little less value to secure so they kind of have this nice um, there's this trade-off where they can actually be much more opinionated about the design of MEV and, and user experience that's just it's super fascinating to to kind of stack those two different perspectives, one against the other, but it has just been a, a very cool instance to see where these two uh, sort of design spaces and opinions are converging. Like that exact phrase that you just said, Hasu, about not wanting to hard code users intents. You can go to this this episode. Uh, obviously, we, we talked to Barry. Uh, unfortunately, you weren't able to be there, but I talked to Barry this season, but there's a great episode on I Pledge Allegiance, which is a great podcast between him and Dave Oha which is one of the founders of Osmosis where he talks about exactly that idea you know where you should be a little bit less prescriptive about hard coding intents in um and I I would be curious just to get like your particular I think you've probably spent between Maker and Lido and and Flashbots a little bit more time on the Ethereum side of things but I would love to kind of get your perspective on sort of that that philosophical division between Cosmos and Ethereum
1: yeah you know I I'm, I'm really bummed that I, I I had to miss the Cosmos episode because you're totally right. I I definitely have a bent towards Ethereum, um, but I'm very interested in in what they're doing in Cosmos because they can move much faster and they can try stuff that we frankly cannot try in Ethereum. And um, but they can nonetheless like yield very interesting results and very interesting data points that that we can ingest. With. And the reason that they can move so much faster, of course, what like on the one end is that they are secure kind of much less money, um, but their, their chains are also kind of much more like specific towards individual applications. So in Ethereum, everything that we change about the protocol layer affects millions of different users, right? Many of which have kind of opposing interests. And the goal, like the, the very kind of specific goal for Ethereum is to be this credibly neutral base layer on, on top of which like many different things can be built and they can all coexist. And if you deploy something, then you have a very strong guarantee that your, your application um is not going to be broken by the next update. And the Ethereum Foundation is trying really hard to honor that promise, right? And and kind of to to enshrine that, that that idea of credible neutrality. And um Cosmos doesn't have that problem, right? Like in Cosmos, um they are like so look, looking at Osmosis for example. So full disclosure, I'm an investor um, at, um, at Osmosis. But so they have like permission smart contracts for example, right? So if you want to deploy a smart contract on Osmosis, like you have to get it permission by governance for example, right? If um, they they have a rule that that um, validators in Osmosis are not allowed to sandwich like a user for example, right? Uh, even though they totally could, right? It's, it's just like this understanding that so if a validator does that, then it's going to be a governance vote and they will get socially slashed. And like all of this stuff would completely, like be completely impossible to enforce in Ethereum, right? There's no governance layer. First of all, in Ethereum where people can vote with their coins that a particular validator should be slashed. Um, so even the idea in Ethereum is like so outlandish that it's like not even possible to entertain. And so because you're so much smaller and so much more nimble and you can do all of these things that are completely impossible in Ethereum and vice versa. And so Ethereum just has to take a very different approach. It has to be much more slow moving and a lot more stuff has to be built in ways that do not break the existing guarantees of the system and that do not require kind of any kind of rapid or breaking changes to the protocol. And um yeah, I think I think this is um this is the main reason why um um Yeah, in Cosmos, they can just move so much quicker and they can change the protocol in ways that um, in Ethereum we can't and why we have to look more into building stuff that's compatible with the status quo and kind of layer stuff on top of it. Something that I hear out
0: of the Osmosis community and I I do think uh, it would have been great to get, especially Dave is very outspoken about his his views on MEV and it's been sort of antithetical to a lot of stuff that we've talked about this season, but um, it's kind of this idea of what can your validators do for you As opposed to it's like the opposite design principle in in ethereum and the you know having the explicit aim to commoditize validators i think is what part of what makes ethereum's block space so valuable but it is kind of an, an interesting thought experiment that's playing out in cosmos about like if you have more sophisticated validators that understand the application code as well as the consensus layer it's just pretty interesting um overall and maybe Maybe like the the segue that we can sort of close on here is is privacy Because um, I know you i know you've done some you you've spoken to Henry even though you weren't on the episodes um, and sort of looked into penumbra a little bit and it's it's fascinating what they're is it it's just interesting to hear his story you know not starting in m e v at all right he was starting from the perspective of privacy and and protocol design, and then he sort of wound his way up uh at penumbra and I would love to just sort of, we didn't get to talk as much about privacy in this episode as I would have liked, but I know it's been a big focus for you. So I would love to get your sort of closing thoughts on kind of kind of privacy. And we didn't talk really much about that much about like threshold encryption or anything like that. But yeah, I would love to maybe close with your overarching thoughts on privacy.
1: Here. I also thought when you said that on the interview, so I was listening back to it the other day, I thought it was really interesting that he said that um, they hadn't actually started with any kind of application in mind that. Just been working on privacy, and I think this is a very common experience for a lot of people in crypto. Actually, so if you look at Monero, if you look at Zcash, like these original kind of these privacy OGs, um, the argument for privacy was always more like ideological, right? It was like, oh yeah, people deserve privacy. Um, Monero maybe a bit less so. I think there was like always more, well, we need the privacy in order to kind of transact on darknet markets and so on, right? Uh, Monero was always built like slightly more maybe with kind of a bit of like the government as like an adversary actor in mind, whereas Zcash was kind of built more um, with the idea that it's private, but you can comply if you want to make that like really easy for you. And um, I think what we're seeing now, now that we have DeFi and that we have uh, much more kind of merging between like tradfi and defi every year that goes on, and kind of more and more experts from mechanism design and, and so on coming into crypto. Um, I think we now all of a sudden see like another branch of people who say well, we we don't need we, we need privacy, but not for like any ideological kind of reasons. We need it because without privacy, you cannot build like efficient markets. Like, you actually need privacy for efficient markets. Like, the internet didn't take off before there was, like, encryption. Um, there was, like, no, like, you, you don't have, like, online communication without encryption. You don't have, like, people paying online with their credit cards. But you also can't have, like, efficient auctions, efficient marketplaces. Like, if someone could see that I want to buy, like, a particular item on eBay or on Amazon, and they can run me, like, none of this stuff will work, right? So... Uh, now I think we have this much more real, like tangible need for privacy, um, that we didn't have in the past when kind of the lack of privacy was not exploited in the same way. And also there wasn't as much economic activity. And so I find that super interesting. Um, this whole extreme like, of, of thought. And I think we will see, I mean, just like privacy for me is going to be the big topic in the MEV supply chain for the next couple of years. Um. Just because we need privacy in order to have to kind of break this current trend of vertical integration, you need privacy to enable division of labor between different parties, and you need it to build more efficient markets. And so, I think, um, I think kind of the next 10x, maybe 100x improvement that we will see in Ethereum will come from encrypting the AEV supply chain, um, kind of. From the moment that a user like, sends their intent to the time when it's being confirmed on chain, I think when we can build that, I think just Ethereum as a base layer would just be like so 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 much more useful um, as a as a platform kind of to deploy your mechanisms to build new markets on top of, but also to use any of the systems that already exist. And so I would say yes, I'm super bullish on the concept of privacy. Not for the ideological reasons, but just for kind of the, the very tangible reasons that I laid out.
0: So that I'm I'm also I would also put myself in the camp of uh, I would love ideologically to see more privacy in general. I will say privacy seems to be a one of the rare sort of bipartisan issues in 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 Washington at least. Like people don't seem to really value their privacy that much, and I do. Um, you know, talking to some people in, in crypto who've like worked on privacy solutions, I wonder if that's kind of this thing where we might need to wait for an overton window for people to to care about it. Um but I I would just sort of put myself in the camp of hoping just yeah, from an ideological perspective that privacy becomes thing, something that we build into more systems and people start to value a little bit more. But I totally hear you on the more pragmatic aspect of yeah, for
1: options to work, there needs to be some measure of privacy. It was this way with um uh I forgot what it's called, uh, like main encryption protocol online um so i read i read about that like some time ago but uh, there was a big debate about whether encryption should be allowed online right? and i think it was like not any of the philosophers or anyone making kind of these ideological arguments that ultimately swayed kind of the united states states government on that being okay it was um it was just like the very pragmatic kind of industry coming together and saying like it's not gonna like it's not gonna work. We need encryption to do commerce online, and so I think there will have to be a similar push eventually in crypto. Like we need, like it needs to be okay for things to be encrypted. Otherwise, like commerce on the blockchain is not gonna work. And so um, I would, I, if I had to guess, I think that that time will come. Uh, when I'm not sure, but in the meantime, we just keep bidding. Any
0: sort of closing thoughts, Hasu? I mean, I know we've got our sort of individual wrap up,
1: uh, just the two of us, but like.
0: Close. I don't know anything you want to bookend or leave listeners with, or anything like that.
1: I thought that the one thing that we didn't touch on um, here now in this like post discussion, I, I thought it was very interesting. Um, just the position that Barnaby takes as part of um, the Theorem Foundation and like the kind of how he shows like us how they think internally, which is that um, they are they are kind of very focused on like not letting things get too far out of hand. So they look into different things. They look into like PBS and builder centralization. They are also going to start looking at OFA. And then they basically think about things that could be deployed, but not with the intention of deploying it, more so as a kind of nuclear option, right? Kind of as a way of of like um, kind of disciplining the market. And uh, I think you see a lot of parallels here with just like regulators in, in other markets, right? Um, and so far, I think they've taken like a very light touch approach, which I think is exactly the right, um, uh, way of thinking about like a system like Ethereum. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. This kind of, uh, these paradigms between like the Ethereum foundation and like a calculator. I think it's, you know, in this season, I think we've wanted
0: to stay relatively in the weeds and a little bit technical, but it, it's also been, yeah, I've found myself sort of wondering what's the right mental model or framework to you know to assess protocol design, and I think it's much less looks like a business and much more looks like a a government and and regulators. I think John Adler, there's a great talk John Adler gave, I think, and one of the DevCons where he explicitly sort of went into more detail about the analogy of uh, regulation on Ethereum. So, um, all right, great episode, also I think we can leave it there. Thank you so much, Mike.